Here's a quote from an article written, written rather recently by our next guest. Quote, opportunities in the natural resource sector are a consideration for many indigenous communities. Many are contemplating becoming involved or have already become involved and are forging their own pathways with industry. Poverty is no longer an option. Managing our resources and revenues will be our way to resolving some of the issues that have kept us locked in despair. This part of an article on National Post a couple of days ago uh, entitled Let Indigenous People Prosper from Oil and Gas. The author of the piece, Melissa Embarkey from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Melissa, joining us again this morning from Edmonton. Good morning, Melissa. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on your show, and I'm happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Melissa. Now, you, uh, in the uh, article you wrote in the Post a few days ago, uh, you point to yourself as as a good example of all of this and the fact that you, uh, one of your first jobs in the real working world was in the petro sector, correct? That is correct. Um, I come from a small, poverty-stricken community. We have no jobs. Uh, There are no jobs in the foreseeable future, And after I finished my studies, I was contemplating on what I wanted to do because where am I going to move? I can't move back to my community Mm -hmm. because there's nothing there. Yeah. So the oil and gas sector, um, I actually became involved in a pretty big project and it was my introduction into this, um, into the sector and it provided me a career for the last 15 years. In the last five or so years, I've seen Indigenous communities become more involved in the natural resource sector. And it's not just oil and gas, it's mining, it's pipelines. We've seen some major investments and a lot of these communities have thrived because of it. And from the outside looking in, however, uh, here in BC, of course, as you know, next door, uh, the the petro sector is most heavily populated by LNG projects underway in the mega billions. But I'm going back to your article, Melissa, for for your comment. Another false narrative is that Indigenous people have to choose between the oil and gas sector and land rights. When engagement and partnership building are initiated with Indigenous communities, solutions are tangible and workable. We can move forward with Indigenous while restoring treaty rights. That is a a perspective that you provide in your article that isn't necessarily duplicated in the field, is it? That is correct, um, because our voices aren't the loudest out there. Those who are the loudest are the protesters against this industry. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, they have an opportunity to learn about this sector. And LNG is one of the cleanest uh, forms of energy out there. It's replacing coal, not only in Canada, but worldwide as well. So that's a consideration. Um, You know, when, when you're out there sort of going against an industry, get a little bit more information about it. Um, you know, interact with the communities, find out, you know, go and talk to a diverse group of people, not just the ones who are opposing it. Mm -hmm. And you'll see the economic benefits that this will bring to communities. Ellis Ross, um, I actually just seen him at a conference a couple weeks ago, and he said his community was one of the poorest in Canada. And they, in the last seven years, have gone from being the poorest to not being dependent on the government. Mm. And I think stories like this need to be shared, not only in B.C., but across this country, because this is really important. You know, poverty is one of the biggest issues that we face today. And if we're not addressing it, these issues are going to get worse. And, you know, we're having a tough enough time dealing with it right now. 
I can't imagine dealing with it tenfold in the future, and we need to start addressing this today and not tomorrow. Help us understand, Melissa, if you can at all, uh, and again, the confusion from the outside looking in, the the distinction between elected uh, officials in Indian bands or nations and hereditary officials uh, who seem in many cases to be at direct conflict with each other, and, and you're sitting on the outside going, geez, who do I cheer for here? I think you cheer for the entire community, you know, that they have to be able to come together. If they don't come together and they don't start making decisions for their entire entire community, not just themselves, they are going to stay in that same place for a very long time. And that's not a very good place to be. So what I would do is not choose sides and just, you know, get them to communicate with each other because that is what's lacking. And if they start talking to each other, they can start coming up with solutions. Well, maybe they didn't want to do things this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the alternative? You know, start talking about the alternative, start talking about tangible solutions, and maybe they will get somewhere. But I come from a small community, and it is not a good place to be when you're divided. So I would encourage them to talk to each other. And, you know, forge those relationships because that's really what's going to move their communities forward. Melissa, is there a role for government in all of this or is government best advised to stay the heck out of the way and let uh, people work things out for themselves? It would be easy to say just don't get involved. But if you are going to be involved in this dispute or in this inner conflict, then listen to both sides and talk to both sides. Don't choose one over the other because that's just going to create an even bigger mess. And they probably know this going in and do it deliberately anyways, but that's not going to get this community very far. And I would rather resolve these issues within as opposed to taking it out into the public. Um, You know, being from an Indigenous community, it's easier to resolve issues than it is to have people choose sides. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get there, it, the damage is irreparable, or if you do repair it, it takes years. Melissa, you're in, in Edmonton, and of course the province of Alberta, very much in the crosshairs of the government of Canada with respect to oil, particularly, and gas. Uh, and, and we're talking about now the transition plan, which apparently is at a plan-to-have-a-plan stage. Not a lot of details available, but there is one, assuming uh, somebody's working on one. Uh, how does it shake out, as you understand it now, for Indigenous people? Oh, it's going to cut jobs. I mean, the more you cut this industry, the more jobs you're going to be removing. And this not only impacts Canadians, but it impacts Indigenous communities who, for the first time in, you know, decades, are becoming economically Mm self-sufficient. And when you start taking this away, you become more dependent on the government. And that's not what we want. We want to come up with solutions. And the way the plan sits right now, it's, it's not a solution. They don't have a transition plan. It's, it's just saying the oil and gas sector is bad and we're going to remove it. Well, that's not a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, go, go back to the table, look at solutions like carbon tech, look at these zero emission hubs that are starting up, look at Pathway Alliance, who is looking to work with the oil sands and, you know, be able to c- capture carbon and store it. There are so many solutions out there that aren't even 
on the table right now. And they need to start talking about this because cutting an industry that we rely on is not a, it's not a solution to climate change. Interesting stuff. Melissa, great to have you back with us this morning. Your background in the petrol sector shows uh, brilliantly in this article you wrote in the National Post. And we do appreciate your taking a few extra minutes to flesh it out with us on the radio in Vancouver. Good to have you back. Thanks. You're welcome.